0: A warm welcome, and good morning again to all. We are resuming our time in the book of Genesis, and so we will be at the sixth chapter. That's Genesis 6. Commence our reading there at verse 9. But but before I do, I think it might be useful for us just to reacquaint ourselves with how we're looking at this book as a whole and and why we're going about it in the sections that we are. So, if you remember, if you were with us last time, we looked at the book of Genesis and we saw that there in the book itself, there are divisions. And of course, here I'm not referring to the chapter divisions, I'm not referring to uh, the numbers that we have in large print in our Bibles. Uh, there are divisions that are marked by that phrase, the generations of, and as we go through this lecture, you'll notice that uh, I'll refer to that in the Hebrews. The word toledot, and toledot marks for us really ten divisions within the book itself. Uh, let me just rattle off those divisions for you, so that we have some context. So, as you remember from our very from our second time looking at this book, the book really divides. From chapters one to two, so two, four, one to two, four is one section. Two, four to four, six is another major division. Five, one to six, eight, another division uh, that we'll be looking at here. Six, nine to eleven, nine. Again, you have the words Toledote marking off a section. And then thirty seven, verse two to fifty, verse twenty six. Now I've just given you five sections of text there, and those five sections of text really form the major divisions of the book. But as we're going to see even this morning, the text divides itself in five further ways. Even within those those sections, there are subsections. And so as we look at the book of Genesis, what we find here is that the book itself is, by divine inspiration, organized according to very basic themes. The sections I just rattled off to you, you remember... Creation, that first section, takes us then to the generations of Adam, to the generations of Noah, to the generations of Shem, to the generations of Jacob. And you can see then that these divisions are not just there structurally. They are there as well. The idea here is, is that these book, the book itself is showing to us what are the major, the principal ideas that are being communicated. And that's how we're looking at the book. We're taking each section as the scriptures divide itself, according to each section, which brings us to our text this morning, and that is what we have here in Genesis six, and starting there at verse nine, you'll find there the words, "These are the generations of Noah." And again, that section really continues on to the to the eleventh chapter. Now we looked at five one to six eight last time we were together and I won't ask you, won't quiz you on all the things that I said um, about a month ago now. Uh, but you do remember that from 5.1 to 6.8 provides for us, strikingly, in just over a chapter of text, the entire antediluvian period. Uh, friends, that's centuries, really millennia that's in view there. And so when we come to our section of text this morning, we are really at the eclipse of that age and are entering into a new phase entirely. And so it's striking how the scriptures present this new epoch to us. As you look at this section, which we'll take this morning just for the sake of time, uh, verses 6, sorry, verses 9 to the end of chapter 6, verse 22, you'll notice here that this end of the antediluvian age is introduced to us, first of all, with a biography. So verses verses 9 to 12 give us the character of Noah. We've already been introduced to Noah, of course, before this, but now we get something more of who he is. And then 13 to 21, the bulk of our text this morning, is really a monologue. Here the Lord is speaking directly to Noah, and you'll find that within that monologue you have in verse 13 the reiteration of the promise of judgment, verses 14 to 16 the command to build the ark, and then verses 17 to 21, the covenant, the covenant as promised to Noah. And then verse 22 concludes this subsection within a subsection with Noah's response to all that's gone before. And so that's really our text for this morning. Now, before we even launch into that, I think it is useful for us to just to go back and refresh on two points what we said with regard to chapter 5, verse 1 down to 6, 8. And First of all, i would remind you, friend, that contrary perhaps to the common reading of this text, there is a real emphasis in five, one all the way to the middle of the sixth chapter on Adam and on Sethites. And, and I, I would highlight that for you because this is a crucial aspect of the book, but it's also a crucial aspect, of course, of the entire word of God. This is giving to us history, but it's giving history, this history to us with very real points of emphasis. And What I mean by that, friend, is you remember that we are looking here at the line of believers. When we look at Sethites, we are seeing those who have called upon the name of the Lord. And, and I won't rehearse all of the names that we looked at last time we were together, but you remember that each of those names had real significance. The Father named the Son according to the Father's devotion to God. And what's striking is... In all of the fifth chapter, there is no reference to Cain. The line of Seth is the church. Cain is the reprobate, the apostate line. And this is something we can't miss as we look at this history. We're not merely given an account of what that first thousand years or so was like prior to the flood. We're given so much more than that. This is really ecclesiastical history. This is church history. We can't miss that. And I want you to note, friend, that as we look then at 5.1 to the end of uh, the 8th verse of chapter 6, what the narrator is doing as he's writing under inspiration of God's Spirit is to show us both the rise of the church before the flood and its decline. Just briefly, look at 4.26. Genesis 4.26. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. Now note this. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now you remember, of course, that men were already worshiping God. They were already praising God. Ergo, all of the beginning of the fourth chapter of Genesis, right? But here at the end of the fourth chapter, to Seth's line, there was an extraordinary grace poured out upon them. Real revival is what you and I should be seeing in the end of this fourth chapter. But then flip over to chapter 6 and look here at verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The sons of God, these ones who were part of this godly line, who were really named, for God's sake, and and dedicated to the worship of God, have now intermingled with the reprobate line. And here is the Lord's response to that family that once he said, they will call upon the name of the Lord. Now he says, my spirit will not always strive with them. Luther, I think, is really interesting on this point. He says, when we look at the sixth chapter and the third verse, what you're supposed to see is the Lord is saying, literally, literally, My spirit that has moved and regenerated the generations before will do so to this generation no longer. Luther goes even so far as to say you should see here the absence then of preaching. Noah, as the New Testament calls him, a preacher of righteousness will be spared. But only he. The rise of the church in the pre-flood world and its conclusion. Well, almost, conclusion. And that really is what brings us to our text this morning. Now, for now, we are going to be quite brief. I'll keep my comments to a minimum here, but I would like to read the text. And I want to read it according to the divisions that I've already laid out to you. Um, so verses 9 to 12, uh, the biography of Noah is where we'll begin. And so hear now the word of our God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. I want you to notice, friend, as we begin with Noah. Even though we've already been introduced to the man, the narrator is very we're supposed to see him as a unique man. He is, as the text tells us, a just man and perfect in his generation. In this time of declension, in this time of defection from God, Noah, we're told, is a man who is just and who is perfect. That is, a man who is dedicated to the worship and work of God and a man who, as, as we even have Job described for us in chapter 1 in the same way, who is perfect. No, not that he's been brought to consummation, but but the idea there being that in every part of Noah, grace has moved. He's not a half-hearted man. He's a whole-hearted man when it comes to the things of God. And what's striking is the text reiterates something about Noah that we found only of one other character in chapter 5. He was one who walked with God. Of course, we are thinking there of Enoch 5.22 and 5.24. Enoch walked with God. And you remember what the Lord does. To this great one who walked with the Lord in a time of declension, Enoch was taken, which was a mercy to Enoch, and really we should see that as as a judgment upon the world, that such a one was taken so young. Uh, But regardless, the idea there is, is that at this point even, we should be anticipating mercy to come to Noah, as it did to Enoch. He walked with God we should expect a similar kind of favor shown to him. We're told here that Noah begat three sons. The names of each, uh, Shem, is literally the word name, uh, but it could be rendered fame or reputation. Ham, strikingly, and we'll see why this is crucial later on, means weak or prostrate. And Japheth means expansive or simple. Those names of course, will become quite significant in the chapters ahead. But if you look at verses 11 and 12, you have that statement that the earth was also corrupt before God. Now, in the original, the, there is a conjunction that is used in the text here. And, and one could translate that, and, but I think more appropriately with a number of commentators, really this should be translated, but. As though the narrator is introducing a contrast... Here is one who walks with God. Here is one who is perfect and upright. But, in contrast, the earth was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. See the contrast there. Here's Noah. And how starkly different does he look than the earth, now beheld by the Lord? It's a striking thing, and we'll come back to that toward the end of our time here. But I want you to notice even that last phrase that I read to you. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Does that strike you, that construction, how those words are given to us? Let me read to you from Genesis 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now let me read to you again verse 12. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Striking even, there is a real and deliberate parallel between those two verses. God saw at the end of creation all things are good. Now in this moment he says, same words really, they're all ruined, all corrupt. And then it says here, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. The word his way really should be translated man's walk. So you think of, of course, Psalm 1. And so the flesh that's in view here is primarily man. Some would expand this to include the beasts, but it's proper for us to see this, of course, as moral, rational creatures. And so the flesh here that have corrupted their way is man. And again, how does this contrast with Noah? It's a striking, striking text. Now, as we come then to verses 13 to 21, we come then to the monologue. Here we have the reiteration of the Lord's displeasure with this period of time in which the church has corrupted itself with the world and now the Lord speaks to the one with whom he walks, Noah. Verses 13 to 21. I'll just read that briefly here for you. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark... Shall thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shalt come unto thee and to keep them alive. And and take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be food for thee and for them. I, I won't say too much here, friend, for the sake of time. I just remind you that in verse 13, we have the Lord's communication of his purpose to Noah. Now, this has already been communicated to us now three times. Large, If you look at the fifth chapter, you could even say up to six times Judgment has been promised in one way or another, implicitly or explicitly. But now what we're told is the Lord reveals this specifically to Noah, the man with whom he walks. Now as he does this, it's a striking thing, because though the Lord has already communicated this prospect of judgment before, when he reveals it to Noah, he does it in a way that's unique. I want you to see this. God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The end there in the original is not the word for destruction or even the word for conclusion. The word end there has behind it the idea of a limit, a border, if you like. In other words, what the Lord is saying is, they have reached their limit. I've seen their corruption. I've seen their wickedness. And now they have reached the point of no return. This is how the Lord communicates this first of all to Noah. And then he adds this. He says, for the earth is filled with violence through them, or you could translate it by or because of them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth, or from the earth, could be. Do you see how the formula is set before Noah? First of all, the Lord gives the charge. The charge is they've reached their limit. They've come to the point where the Lord has said, like the waves of the sea, you'll come here and no further. And then he cites the evidence, because I have seen that the earth is filled with violence by them. And then the Lord passes sentence. He says, I will destroy them with or from the earth. You see what the Lord does as he reveals this to Noah. He is coming as a just judge. And he's setting the case in a really, in a almost formulaic way to Noah. This is the judge of all the earth who does right. It's a sense that we should get from this 13th verse. The verses 14 to 16 are striking. Of course, this is the direction that Noah is given to build the ark. What's striking is, in these verses, Noah is not told that there's even going to be a flood. That doesn't come until the 17th verse. Um, He's simply told to build the ark beforehand. Then he's told why afterward. And then on top of that, um, he's not even told that he's going to enter into the ark yet. He's really just told to build it. And what is the ark that he's told to build? Well, really the size of it, roughly speaking, is 400 feet in length, 75 feet in breadth, and 45 feet in depth. And all of that, of course, is dependent upon how you measure or define a cubit um, and whether or not you think that some men's elbows are longer than others. But But the idea is is that this is a massive, massive ship. And what's striking is, as you look at this, and mariners, nautical scientists have looked at this, it's a striking thing. If it were 600 feet long, it would be more comfortable. But it would not be more stable. And it would be liable to breaking. If it were 130 feet roughly across, that is its breadth, it would be more stable, but it would not necessarily be as strong, and it certainly would not be comfortable. And if the ark were 100 feet in depth, it would be strong, but it would almost be impossible to stand on, to live in. The dimensions that are given to us in Scripture are precisely in between all of them. It is at its optimum in terms of comfort, strength, and stability. A striking thing. Um, and it shows to us, of course, the wisdom of God and his care for the church in this time. Now, as we come to verses 17 to 21, and as we close here, we have the Lord telling Noah that he will make with him his covenant. And I want you to notice verse 17, you have the occasion. The occasion of the covenant is this, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. And this we should see as a preamble, a kind of introduction to the verses that follow. The Lord has already promised judgment. That came to us already in the monologue, verse 13. But now he is reiterating this point to prepare Noah to see what the Lord is going to do with him particularly. The Lord is going to bring a flood of waters and destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. And then you come to the covenant. But with thee will I establish my covenant. This is a striking text because this is the first time the word Barit or covenant, comes to us in the scriptures. The very first time. And the Lord promises he will make his covenant with him. And then, of course, tells us that this covenant, part of it belongs to, that these ones, his family, would be spared. In other words, beloved, the church would be preserved. As we look at this, friend, there are three uh, things I want us to notice just briefly. As I said to you before, as the inspired historian presents these things to us, it's very clear how we're supposed to look at this judgment. The antediluvian period, that period before the flood, had reached its limit. And now God comes and does the work of a just judge. That's how the scriptures present this moment to us. It's a striking thing. What's also striking is even the, word, the use of the word corrupt. The word corrupt there does mean ruined, like it does in our, own, in our own vernacular. But here's the idea. When the Lord is going to come and judge, what he's really doing, it's striking even in the text, and we'll see this in a moment, they have ruined the earth, and so God will, as it were, confirm the ruin. They have brought ruin upon themselves, and the way the text brings this to us is God will simply second their ruining. It's a striking way to think about human sin. Striking way to think about generational declension. But then I want you to notice even the form of judgment that's used here. How will the Lord's confirmation of ruin be brought? It'll be by flood. And interestingly, the word eretz continues to come up, that word for earth in this sixth chapter. And if you think about that in relation to the day of creation, The significance of the flood, I think, comes to us even more clearly. The Lord is going to wipe off of the earth all the breath of life. He's not speaking, of course, about the fowls of the air. He's not thinking about the fish of the sea, but he's thinking about man and beast. And then we're told here he's going to submerge the land. If you hold that in relation to the days of creation, that's day six and day three that are undone. The breath of life from off the earth, day six. The land plunged once again into the deep. The undoing of day three. I've said this to you often, but when judgment comes, that's the idea. The mercies and the goodnesses that God has given will systematically be be undone. Um, And you can even see that in our text this morning. And then you find, of course, the impetus for the covenant that's made. And I'll note this just very briefly in passing. Every time the covenant is made in the book of Genesis, there is always some preceding calamity that is an impetus for the covenant's narrowing. Take first of all the fall. The fall occurs, then Genesis 3.15, the covenant is made, there will be one of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. But then come to Noah the covenant will be made with noah specifically in the face of this great general judgment we even move on to abram the destruction of the nations at babel their scattering and removal from the lord that's the impetus then for the lord to make his covenant with abram through which then the nations would be blessed through the one seed that would be messiah it's important for us to understand How these things come to us through Scripture. There is judgment, and then there's the narrowing of the covenant. But as we then keep that in mind as we look at this text, what is then the crisis of Genesis six? What is the crisis that's instigated? Is it merely the end of the human race? And the answer, of course, is no. No. The crisis of Genesis six is the question of Genesis three fifteen. How will that come to pass? How will it be if all the breath of life is destroyed? How will it be that the church has a redeemer? And so in our text, what we read here, the Lord has promised that his covenant would be made with Noah. We could see that as a precursor of Genesis 9, of course, but I think even more broadly we can see that as that the promise, of course, that was made in Genesis 3.15 would come, would be preserved indeed, so that Christ would come and would indeed redeem his people. Now, beloved, as we think about this, this sixth chapter of Genesis holds before us a man who walked with God when the world was desperately wicked. It shows us, doesn't it, then, that men can walk intimately with the Most High, even in a declining generation even when the world has reached its limit of sin, God will still commune with his own, and even intimately. That's one application we should take from this text. And if that's the case, beloved, how earnest should we be to walk with the Lord, if that's even possible in our generation, in our generation of decline. The second application, of course, is for our comfort. Here, beloved, you see here not just the preservation of the human race, Here you have the promise preserved that your Redeemer would indeed come. He who would release you from that curse under which you fell from the first Adam would indeed come, redeem you from that curse, and by his grace, cause you to commune with the Most High. It shows you, beloved, even that the Christian should read even these texts, these early texts of God's Word, and see that history moves; every part of God's providence moves, even for your redemption, and that for God's glory. Amen. Well, let's let's close with prayer. Let's stand to pray. Our blessed and eternal God, we come before you thankful that your word is a sure place to stand. And so we thank you that as it tenders to us gospel comfort, we know that these things are that they are themselves undoubted. Yea and amen, in the son of your love. And so, Father, we do thank you for these reminders. But we do ask in earnest that you would cause us to appropriate them rightly, that these things would instigate us to greater holiness, that we would long to be numbered among those in a declining age of whom it could be said, they, they walked with God. Lord, we ask this not for our own namesake. We ask this not that other men might marvel, but we ask this because our souls stand in so great need that we would know this God, that we would walk with him. So gracious God, be with us. Cause us, as you did your service in the past, to walk believingly and obediently. Be gracious to us, we pray then, as we look to Jesus Christ, even as we make these petitions now. For it's in his blessed name that we ask. Amen.